Okay, I invite you to stand again and turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 788. I'm going to be reading Zephaniah 1 1 through 3 8. <clears throat> Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst and all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely. That said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would be cut off, would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we come to another book, another minor prophet, God, we are reminded of our need to hear from you, our need for you to speak through your word. We feel so far removed from this time and place, from these events. But God, in reality, we are your people, just as the people of Judah were your people and needed to hear this word from you. So God, would you speak this morning? Give us ears to hear from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In our last five and a half years that we lived in China, we lived in a city called Quinming in Southwest China. And we uh, transitioned from working with college students when we lived in Beijing to working uh, with doing a lot of different things, working with house church leaders. Uh, we had opportunities to teach at some Bible schools. There were some underground Bible schools that were run by some people we knew. Uh, one of my friends was uh, Kai Xin was his name, which means happy. Um, so um, he's a, a good friend of mine. He taught at this Bible school and I was with him one day, we were driving to the school. It's up in the mountains. And it was in this area where there had recently been a pretty significant forest fire. It was, it was while we had lived there, there was this fire and there was a Buddhist temple up there. There was a really old Buddhist temple and the fire, like made it like right up to the temple and then kind of went a different direction and, and didn't burn this temple down. But we were we were driving up there and, and I asked him uh, in Chinese, I asked him if there had been any uh, fires recently in that area, kind of where, where the, the school was and if there had been any like damage. Uh, and so the word for that I used in Chinese for forest fire was senlin huo. Uh, the word for forest is senlin. So it's S-E-N-L-I-N in the phonetic spelling in English, Senlin. And where we lived uh, in Southwest China, uh, there is a little bit of a, you maybe could compare it to a Southern drawl in the U.S. Um, some things are maybe pronounced a little bit differently. And so in, in our area, people don't pronounce their H's and they also don't pronounce in the middle of words. And then they don't pronounce their G's at the end of words. So when I said Senlin, uh, he heard Sunlin, which if pronounced correctly would be Shengling, which means Holy Spirit. So as I asked this question, he's going on and on about how God had been at work and there were all these revivals going on. And, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And I said, no, no, no. I said, is there any Sunlin Hua forest fire? And he thought I said, Holy Spirit fire. Um, I love to tell that story uh, because sometimes people ask, you know, like different words that can be interpreted differently or like funny language stories. That's one of my funniest language stories of just this like major misinterpretation. But I think there's something kind of funny about that um, because there is a very much a connection with this idea of fire and this idea of revival, right? And it seems like a lot of, a lot of people want revival but they don't want the fire, right? They don't want the trial by fire. 
a forest fire comes in and it clears out a lot of old mess and it makes way for new growth. There are a lot of, um, you know, the national forestry and, and local places, they will have fires that they do purposely to do this, to, to get out some of that old growth. I actually found a video of a, like a time lapse of this forest. It was like two months and they burned it all down and, and then it just regrew very quickly. Um, but sometimes it takes time. It's not, it doesn't always happen quickly. The new growth doesn't just pop up overnight. It can be a long process, but in the end, it's better for the forest, right? It clears out a lot of the, the old stuff, a lot of the, the dead stuff and makes way for new growth. Well, how might this parallel to our lives or to our life in, to our individual lives or to our life in the church? That's what I want us to explore today through our text in Zephaniah. If you're taking notes, here's the question that I want us to consider both as individuals and corporately as a church. The question is, are we willing to allow God's refining fire to purify our lives so that we might experience true spirit-wrought renewal? Say that again. Are we willing to allow God's refining fire to purify our lives so that we might experience true spirit-wrought renewal. In this short little book of Zephaniah, we see many of the themes that are common to the prophets. Judgment, mercy, and restoration. And for Zephaniah, the historical context is very important for our understanding of the book. We are given some helpful information in Zephaniah 1.1. You see that Zephaniah is a prophet because the word of the Lord came to him. But he is also uniquely a part of the royal family. He is the great, great grandson of good King Hezekiah. Hezekiah reigned for 29 years from 715 to 686. We've mentioned him several times uh, when Sennacherib and the uh, Syrians are coming upon uh, Jerusalem to destroy the city and Hezekiah prays to the Lord. We've, we've mentioned that passage several times. Uh, so Hezekiah was a good king, trusted the Lord, walked with God, but his son Manasseh and his grandson Amon were wicked kings. They reigned from 686 to 640, and they are mentioned here. Then Josiah, uh, this is the time that Zephaniah is prophesying during the time of Josiah, Josiah was the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. He was the only other good king in Judah, and he reigned from 640 to 609 BC. So Josiah and Cushi, who was Zephaniah's dad, were third cousins, which would make Zephaniah and Josiah third cousins once removed. I checked the cousins chart online, made sure I was right with that, so... So Zephaniah is the third cousin once removed of King Josiah. So there is this kind of unique connection here with Zephaniah being both a prophet and having strong ties to the royal family, which we don't really see that in any of the other prophets necessarily in, in that direct way. This historical context is really important. You can go and read about Josiah's reign in 2 Kings 22 and 23. I would encourage you to do that. 
or you can read about it in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. After Josiah's death, there are four more wicked kings who are in place for the next 22 and a half years until the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and take the people captive in 586. During Josiah's reign, there were many positive things that happened. There were massive reforms. He systematically went through uh, the land and removed idols, removed the high places. And six years after those reforms began, the book of the law was found, and they brought it to Josiah and read it to him. Uh, he tore his clothes, and there was uh, repentance. There was crying out to the Lord. He reinstituted the Passover meal, which hadn't been celebrated since the days of the judges. So this was a big deal. This really was a high point for the, the life of the people of Judah. But at the same time, as we know, if we've read our Old Testaments, it wasn't all roses. In 2 Chronicles 34, we read about the prophetess Huldah, who warned Josiah that God was still going to bring disaster upon Jerusalem and the people. Despite all of the reforms, despite the turning to the Lord, God was going to do what he had said he was going to do regarding the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. He was going to do those things because of the idolatry of the people and because they forsook God and his commandments. Again, despite these positive reforms, the people would still go into exile. Now, why do I share all of this for the background? It's not insignificant. There are parallels throughout church history and in our current day. Whether we use the words revival, reform, renewal, or restoration, there is always a hope that people will either turn to the Lord for the first time, that there will be genuine conversions, or that God's people will turn back to him. There seems to be a lot of talk about revival today. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last month, uh, you've probably seen the news of what has been going on at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. A few weeks ago, there was a chapel service that uh, ended up continuing on for over two weeks. Uh, there are a lot of things written about it. Everyone and their brother seems to have an opinion about it. I'm not going to really give uh, any opinions about it, but I think if you read and listen to different things, one of the main questions, and I think this is the right question that comes out of this is, will there be lasting fruit, right? Is this going to be something that changes people's lives for the good, for the long haul, or was this, was this just some flash in the pan, emotional, you know, event that, that went on? And, and that's a great question to ask as we analyze these things. You think about historical revivals in the church. Think about Acts 2 and Pentecost, where thousands were saved. Now, obviously, that was the work of the Lord, and that's recorded in Scripture. So I'm, I'm kind of putting that one in a, in a little bit different place with some of these other ones that I'm going to share, obviously. We think about Acts 2. Think about the Reformation and the, fifth, the work going on in the 15th to 17th centuries in Europe. Think about the first and great awakenings in the 18th and 19th centuries in America. Think about the Jesus revolution, the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. New movie just came out called Jesus Revolution. So there's a lot of, a lot of buzz, right? There's a lot of excitement about these things. Clearly, God has worked in powerful ways in history. He worked in the days of Josiah. 
He worked throughout church history, and he's still at work in our day. And we should pray for revival and reform and renewal and restoration. We should long for those things. But we shouldn't base our hope on the experience of an event or a movement. These things that I listed above, even Acts 2, right, as something that was directly from the Lord, those things were all temporary in some sense. There was some temporary element to those events. And they were also unique in their place in time and history. Shortly after the events at Pentecost, the, the early church was persecuted and it was scattered. There was lots of drama. Go read Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Things were not just great because there had been all this revival and awakening. The churches in Europe today are mostly empty. 500 years after the Reformation. Now, sure, there's still lasting effect, right? But we don't see these, these churches filled with people. We don't see all this excitement that we saw at the time of the Reformation. Where is the fruit of the great awakenings in our country? Did the Jesus movement have a lasting impact? And I'm not, I don't want to like debate and say none of these things were great and none of these things were used by God. But I think we need to, we need to look back historically and see where, where are we at today? So let's bring this back to Zephaniah's day. The reforms of Josiah were incredible and they were necessary. The purity of God's people and our worship is very important, but it doesn't come easily. It doesn't come without God's refining fire. So let's dig into our passage and let's look at what God had to say to the people of Judah and to the surrounding nations. And then we'll see how this applies to us today as we think about God's work of reform and renewal in our day. Now, there are several different ways that we could outline Zephaniah. It's a little bit challenging because there are, like some of the other books, there are some overlapping themes and there is a lot of repetition. What I'm going to kind of base this on is using the contents of chapter 2, 1 to 3, and then chapter 3, verse 8 to kind of form my outline. Uh, because they include the main imperatives, the, the main commands that are given to God's people here. So if you're taking notes, I kind of have a, a beginning phrase and then an A and a B that are going to go with that. So kind of our main thing here is because the fire of God's judgment is coming upon the world. Because the fire of God's judgment is coming upon the whole world. A, we must seek refuge in the Lord in order to be protected from his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy. So because the fire of God's judgment is coming upon the whole world, first, A, we must seek refuge in the Lord in order to be protected from his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy. I'll share the second one when we get to that. So Zephaniah's prophecy here begins in verses 2 through 6 with a zoomed out picture of worldwide judgment, followed by a zoomed in focus on Judah and Jerusalem. Look at the language in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 is total in its devastation. The Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. 
It's not the most encouraging first words of this prophecy. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. In verse 3, then, we see the sweeping away of man and beast, of the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. What does this language remind you of? Genesis 1, right? And notice the order here. It is the reverse order of the creation account. First, God created the fish of the sea, then the birds of the heaven, then the beasts of the field. Then he created mankind. Here he starts with man and he goes in the other direction. So it's almost as if God's giving a picture of this reversal, this undoing of creation that is coming with his judgment. Then he says at the end of verse three, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter six, verses five through seven, when God sees the wickedness of mankind and he decides to blot them out with the flood. In verses four through six, then the focus is on Judah, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, the city. God says that he will stretch out his hand against them. This is language that we saw in the Exodus with the judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God stretched out his hand against them and destroyed them. And there are several references here in these verses to idolatry. And then verse six, we see really the major indictment that is the fruit of their idolatrous ways. It says, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Like the undoing of creation in verse three, this is backwards from how our relationships with God are supposed to work. We are supposed to turn to him. We are supposed to follow him. We are supposed to seek him and inquire of him. This is the language of worship and prayer and communion with God. All of this has been replaced by other things, and the Lord has had enough. Then in verse 7, we are introduced to a theme in Zephaniah that is going to run throughout the rest of the book, as it will be mentioned 24 times in total. We've seen it in Joel and Amos. We will see it at the end of Malachi. The theme is the day of the Lord. The people are being told in verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now it appears that the rebellious people are going to be the sacrificial offering. See that in verses eight and nine. Then God tells us that he will cut off all of those who busily rely on their own wealth. In verse 11, it says, All the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. And then those who are lazy and think that God is uninvolved. Verse 12, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. We're going to see a connection with this when we get to chapter 3. Verse 13 is also significant. It says, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine 
from them. Remember, we've talked about the, the prophets are God's covenant enforcers. At the beginning of our series, we looked at Leviticus chapter 26, which parallels Deuteronomy 28, talking about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. In Deuteronomy 28, 39, one of the curses for disobedience is that they will not drink the wine from their vineyards that they have planted. It's exactly what Zephaniah mentions here in verse 13. God is going to do what he said he was going to do. Verses 14 through 18 then return to a universal audience as the theme of the day of the Lord intensifies. It says in verse 14 that the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Then look at this rapid fire description here of the day of the Lord in verses 15 and 16. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty embattlements. Such a vivid description of all of these things that God is going to do, all of these things that the day of the Lord is going to be for the people who experience it. God tells them very clearly in verse 17 why he is going to do this. The Lord says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung because they have sinned against the Lord. And then verse 18 closes this chapter in a very sobering and decisive way. Look with me at verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This sweeping judgment that is seen throughout this whole chapter, and it wraps up here with this picture of the fire of God's jealousy consuming all the earth, consuming all of mankind. Now we sit here and read this, and this feels pretty heavy. Like more of the same judgment and beatdown that we've been seeing for the last five months as we've been in the Minor Prophets. We are nine books into our Minor Prophets series, and now you see why we wanted to try to do this in 34 weeks and not a year and a half. But this is God's word, and it deserves our undivided attention just as much as any other portion of scripture does. And thankfully, as we've seen in the other eight books, there is always hope. There's always hope for the future. There is always the promise of restoration and renewal. There is always a call from the Lord to his people and to the nations around them to turn to him, to return to him. And we see what this call looks like here at the beginning of chapter two. There are five total imperatives here in these first three verses. It's a combination of two words. Gather is used twice and seek is used three times. Look at verse one. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Come together, God says. Don't stay on the outside. Draw near to me. Get close to that flame 
so that I can refine you and purify you, right? Don't stay far away. Then in verse three, seek, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Notice this connection here with obedience to God and his commandments. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. This is not just some passive thing. This is not just sitting around and hoping that God will do something in our lives. We are to be active in seeking him, active in drawing near to him. And then notice what it says in the second half of verse three. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And to understand this, we need to be clear on what the day of the anger of the Lord means. There have been many days of the Lord, events that have been a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord, the end end when Christ returns and the final restoration of all things is complete. You might call these many days of the Lord. The exodus out of Egypt was a mini day of the Lord. God showed up, God delivered his people, God judged his enemies. The falls of the northern and southern kingdoms are many days of the Lord when God judges his people and judges nations around them as well. The crucifixion of Jesus is the most important foreshadowing event to the final judgment. Again, it's still a mini day of the Lord, right? It has the most massive significance, but it's a mini day of the Lord, meaning that it's pointing forward to the ultimate day of the Lord. Fire and wrath, the fire and wrath of Almighty God was poured out on his own son so that all who seek refuge in him might be protected from his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy. Perhaps you may be hidden here had a hint of uncertainty to it. But if you are in Christ, if you have turned to him in faith and repentance, then you can have certainty that you have been hidden from the anger of the Lord. Paul explains what is true for those who are in Christ in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice just in these four short verses how Paul kind of runs the full scope of history in our lives so to speak, past, present and future. We have died, right? In the past, we are made new. We are hidden with Christ in God in the present. We are hidden from his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy. It will not come upon us. And we look forward to that day when Christ appears and we will appear with him in glory. This is what is true for those who are in Christ. If you're not yet a Christian, these things are not true of you. You have not 
been raised. You have not been seated at the right hand of God with Christ. Your mind is still set on the things of this earth and not things that are above. You are not hidden with Christ in God. You are not hidden from the wrath of God. You need to turn to Christ. You need to hide yourself in him so that you might be hidden from the wrath of God and the fire of his jealousy and anger. Turn to Jesus. That is your only hope. Now let's go into our second half here. While there are some really important takeaways for us, we still need to remember the historical context of Zephaniah's prophecy. This is particularly important in chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 3, verse 8. Zephaniah does something similar here to what Amos did. If you remember, Amos prophesied against nations surrounding uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, kind of in this X formation. He kind of did these crisscrosses, and then he focused in on the capital of Samaria at the end. Zephaniah hits the compass points around Jerusalem in chapter 2 before zooming in then on Jerusalem in the center in chapter 3. Let's look briefly at the rest of chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. The cities listed here in verse 4, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron, these were the coastal cities of the Philistines to the west of Jerusalem. So there is a total destruction of these places here. If you see the end of verse 5, it says, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. So those on the west are going to be wiped out. Verses 8 through 11, the attention is turned to the east, the Moabites and the Ammonites. You may remember the Moabites and Ammonites are descendants of Lot through his daughters who made him drunk and had children with him. I think we see here the reality and the consequences of sexual sin. It's had monumental international consequences for thousands of years. This is not an insignificant thing that these children of this incestuous relationship are now these nations that are opposed to God's people. It goes on to speak um, in verse 9 of that Moab shall be like Sodom and the Ammonites shall be like Gomorrah. Very clear and vivid language here from Genesis 19, the fire of God's judgment coming down and completely annihilating the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's the emphasis on the east. Verse 12 is very short. Speaking of the Cushites, those are, that would be modern day Ethiopia. So that is the focus now turned to the south. So we've gone west to east, now to the south. It says that they will be slain by the sword. And then the north finally gets the most attention in verses 13 through 15. The Assyrians. The Assyrians who were about to get wiped out by the Babylonians, which we saw in Nahum, talking about the destruction of Nineveh. We see Nineveh focused on here in verse 13. The Lord will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Again, it says he will stretch out his hand against the north. He will destroy 
Assyria. Then verse 15, this is the exultant city that lived securely, that sat in her heart, I am, and there is no other. Nineveh, this massive city that thought it was indestructible, that thought no one could come and wipe them out, and that yet the Lord says that is not the case. She has become a desolation, a lair for the wild beasts. People pass by, they hiss at her, and they shake their fists. This is a picture of total destruction. So we see here the judgment of God on the surrounding nations, something that's very common in the prophets. But as we also see, God is not going to allow his people to continue to walk in their sin and disobedience. He's going to bring judgment upon them in order to refine them and to cause them to rely more fully upon him. So Jerusalem is now the center of God's target. Jerusalem is the bullseye. Look at the descriptors here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is almost like a two tables of the law kind of indictment. When we think about the Ten Commandments, we talk about the two tables of the law. The first four commandments are vertical commandments, talking about our relationship with God. And commandments 5 through 10 are the horizontal commandments that deal with our relationships with one another. You can see both of these elements here in these descriptors. Woe to her who is rebellious. No doubt that is, has this vertical element about the people rebelling against the Lord. But then we see that they are also defiled. Certainly that has a, both a, a vertical element. They're defiling in their relationships with God. And then their defilement in their relationships with one another. Then oppressing they are an oppressing city this is, certainly has a horizontal emphasis they are oppressing one another they are oppressing people and not uh, not living out lives of, of justice and righteousness as god has called them to do then verse two i think has also a vertical and a horizontal element for parts of it she listens to no voice she accepts no correction. I think horizontally speaking, this is an indictment that God has sent prophets to them, right? He has sent many prophets to warn them, and they have not listened. They have not heeded the correction, which is ultimately a vertical indictment of their relationship with the Lord, that they have not listened to those, God have sent, those whom God has sent, which means ultimately they have not listened to the Lord. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. This is bad. This is really bad. This is like the complacency we saw in chapter 1, verse 12, where people are saying in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They think God is uninvolved, and they don't give a rip about him or about what he has told them to do. And the blame doesn't lie simply on the people as a whole, God goes after their leaders, those who were to be an example to the people, those who were called by God to lead and to minister to the people as servants of the Lord. Look at verses three through seven. Her officials are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. Her prophets are fickle and treacherous. The priests profane what is holy. They do not fulfill their spiritual duties, and they do 
violence to the law. They do not obey their teaching duties. But then we see this beautiful reminder in verse 5 of who the Lord is. We see the negative picture, right, of these leaders in Jerusalem not doing what they've been called to do. But then we have this contrast with the Lord in verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. We need this reminder, don't we? We need to be reminded that the Lord is unchanging and unfailing. That he will say what he is going to do and that he will do what he said he would do. Always. Every time. We need this so badly because we live in a world full of empty promises. Full of people telling us and promising us that they will be things to uh, for us and do things for us that they either will not or cannot do and be. Now, whether this is the pain from a relationship that has let us down or from a system that has failed us, we need to know that our God will never fail us. He will always keep his promises to us. He will always be and do who and what he has said he would be and do. And our response should be like Peter's when he replied to Jesus' question to his disciples if they wanted to turn and no longer follow him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other hope, right? There is no other refuge. There is no other place to run to, to find answers when life lets us down, when people let us down. Listen to what our God, who has the words of eternal life, has to say to us, his people. Verse 8 is the second summary statement in our passage. It's where we get our second point. That we must wait on the Lord in order to avoid his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy. We must wait on the Lord in order to avoid his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy. Look with me at verse 8. The Lord says, therefore, wait for me. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That's the exact language we saw in chapter one. No fire, no revival. No fire, no reformation. No fire, no renewal. No fire, no restoration. Whatever word we want to use, God is not going to let sin go unpunished. He's not going to turn the other way while his people refuse to listen to his voice and run after other lovers. He is going to deal with us and with our sin. And the good news, again, as we've already Seen, if you are in Christ today, the good news is that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The fire and wrath of God that you and I deserve has been poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Praise God 
for that. We are undeserved recipients of the grace and mercy of God. And we need to be constantly reminded of the truth of our justification. That there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we have done or can do in the future to earn right standing with God. Jesus was that sacrificial offering who was consumed and burned up that we might live. But again, that's only one side of the coin. There is this thing called sanctification. Talked about it with the kids, right? Getting that marshmallow as close to the fire and getting it nice and golden brown. Having God work in our lives. And this involves waiting on the Lord, which we saw in our the past couple of weeks in Habakkuk, that this is not just some passive waiting, but it is an active waiting upon the Lord. God tells his people here in verse eight to wait for God to judge the nations with fire. Now for us today, this is clearly referring about Jesus' second coming. We're not saying like, oh yeah, Lord, come and take Canada out, take Mexico out, burn them with fire. No, this is not, this is not talking in these ways today. This is God's wrath that is coming at the end of time when Jesus returns. This is what we read about in our New Testament reading from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter was writing to Christians who were suffering for their faith and who needed encouragement in their waiting for Jesus to return. While those around them mocked and asked, where is the promise of his coming? Let's hear these words from Peter one more time. Verse 11 to 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Notice the active part of that. We're waiting for God. We are to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is not a passive sitting around and saying, I don't want to get too close to that fire, right? This is saying, no, Lord, draw me near, refine me, burn off that stuff that doesn't belong. So I want to ask us again, are we willing to allow God's refining fire to purify our lives so that we might experience true spirit wrought renewal? I said in the beginning that I want us to consider this question both individually and corporately. We live in a hyper-individualistic age, and we are often way too focused on ourselves. But in this case, I think we do need to start with ourselves. Jesus asks us to consider why we see the speck in our brother or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in our own eye. There's a lot to be concerned about right now in our world and in the broader evangelical church. But if we are so busy looking at all of those specks and not seeing our own logs, then we are not allowing God to purify our lives in the way that is needed. I'm speaking to my own heart right now. I am a speck 
checker and I need to be a log remover. That is the work of God's spirit by his grace. We all need that refining work of God's spirit in our hearts. And we don't just need it individually. We also need it as a church as well. We need to put aside our spec checking and start working on our log removing together. Not so that we can force the hand of God and produce fresh revival or reformation in our day. If God chooses to so work and bless the ministry of our church, then so be it. But we're not after numbers or results. We're not after some flash in the pan moment or movement. Our desire ought to be a people who in obedience to God's word, who in obedience to his commands here in Zephaniah, who gather together, who seek the Lord and who wait upon the Lord together. Those are active things. They're things that take effort. They're things that take time. They're things that take letting down our defenses and getting close to one another, right? It's hard to to let people in sometimes. It's hard to to share what's going on in our lives, but that's the kind of people we need to be. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit, may we be this kind of people. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word makes us uncomfortable. So we come to texts like this that challenge our preconceived notions, that challenge our ideas of, of what it means to, to grow in our faith. We just we want life to be easy. We want relationships to go smoothly. We want our relationships in the church to be without drama and without conflict. But God, we know that all of these things, all of the, the tension, the conflict are, are a result of our sin. We know that these are also things that you desire to burn away. God, would we be a people who, who draw near to you, who avail ourselves to the work of your spirit, to the refining fire of your majesty, of your holiness, May we be a people who long for the day of the Lord, who long for you to come and to make all things new, to burn away all of the things that are just so burdensome in this life. But may we not just sit around and wait passively for that day. God, may we be active in drawing near to you, both individually and corporately as a body. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to spur one another on as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his, in his name we pray. Amen.